it's incredibly amazing to be singing gospel songs and looking around, I, I hope it's okay to just kind of look around from where I was standing, and just have the thought that two months ago there wasn't a church in this building. There wasn't a congregation gathered together, and now there is an embassy of the kingdom singing praises to God and with a vision to not just reach the Castleton area, but to reach the nations. That is something that we don't want to take for granted. That is absolutely amazing. So I was just getting very emotional thinking about that and what a privilege it is to come and be able to bring the word to you. So as Eric mentioned, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Luke Humphrey. Uh, up until the end of August, I was a pastoral resident on staff at the North Indy campus working in community life, and now I'm unemployed and living in my parents' house, which means I'm a true millennial at this stage of my life. So, but I'm also another M word, and that is a missionary. And so, as Eric mentioned, my family is preparing, if you can go ahead and click the next slide, my, my family is preparing to move at the end of the year to the United Arab Emirates, to the city of Dubai, and our vision is we want to go there in this, in this country, in this city where the nations are coming to live and to work, where English is broadly spoken. We want to plant a multi-ethnic English-speaking church in the UAE in order to display the gospel and then to reach the unreached with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so to be able to preach here on the first week of Reach Sunday is such a blessing because this is a topic that is near and dear to our hearts. Uh, for those of you who don't know, if you can click the next slide, the United Arab Emirates is this small little country sandwiched between Saudi Arabia and Oman across the Gulf from Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, India. You know, one of those really warm, fuzzy places that you look at and you're like, that's a great place to raise a family. Go do it. And the reality is it is a great place to raise a family because the gospel need is rich and the gospel is advancing there. You see, in this small country, there are nations coming from the 1040 window, one of the most unreached areas of the world, to live and to work. They're, they're speaking English to one another because that's the language that crosses the cultural and ethnic barriers. And this country has granted the freedom to practice religion. This is amazing for a Muslim country, and that means that we can have a visible, tangible, flesh and bones, real life people like y'all, local church, that's able to reach out with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so would you pray for us as we go there? We, we bought tickets. They are non-refundable, and they're one way. And so we really need your guys' prayer as well. So it's my joy to come to you this morning and to preach about the global mission of the local church, the far-reaching scope of global missions. And we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at all of the book of Ephesians. I don't know when I'm going to get this again, get to do this opportunity again, so I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. And Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible, and so I'm preaching all six chapters. So buckle your seatbelts, we'll be here till about 3 o'clock. Um, we're going to be looking specifically at three aspects of global missions from the book of Ephesians. Three specific aspects. The first is the scope of global missions. The scope of global missions. Second, the means of global missions. And third, the call of global missions. We've already prayed a lot this morning, but we need God's help. So I'm going to pray again. So join with me as we pray. Lord God, we 
this is an amazing book. This is an amazing topic. And yet it pales in comparison to your view. Lord, you are supreme, exalted in the heavens, and yet you've granted the privilege of welcoming broken sinners from every part of this world to have equal access and fellowship with you. Lord, as we look at this book, I pray that you would increase our affection for your glory, and that that delight in your goodness and glory would compel us out to you. Lord, that's through praying, Lord, that's through worship. I pray this in Jesus' name. So first, we're going to look at the scope of global mission. What does the book of Ephesians have to say about it? The first thing we see is that it describes this scope, this, this far-reaching scope of global missions. And we'll see that it goes all the way back, all the way down, and all the way out. So the scope of global missions, according to Ephesians, especially chapters 1 and 2, is all the way back, all the way down, and all the way out. So first, Ephesians 1. If you're looking at your Bible, we're going to be flipping a lot. So you really want to have a Bible open or you want to have fast fingers for your iPhone. So Ephesians 1 shows us that global missions goes all the way back. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Later on in chapter 1, Paul will write that God predestined us for adoption as sons. You see, God's global mission, his, his purpose of reaching the nations with the good news of Jesus Christ, was not some reaction to the fall. It was not some mere afterthought. Global redemption for God's glory has always been at the heart of God's purpose for the world. When God created this world... He knew that he was going to create a people for his own possession to magnify his redemptive mission. Sometimes people may say that the doctrine of predestination undercuts global mission. After all, if God is already predestined, who will believe in Jesus? Why should we send missionaries? But the reality is that actually gets it backwards. You see, rather than undercutting, rather than chopping off missions at the knees, the doctrine of predestination that God has, as Ephesians 1 says, chosen a people before the foundation of the world, that actually fuels global mission. Do you want to know why? It's because God has not only ordained the means or the end, but he's also ordained the means. And so the way that the nations will come to faith in Christ is through missionaries. That God has purposed for his own glory to go out and to preach the gospel. And that means that the mission of God cannot fail. It cannot fail. God has committed his own glory to this mission. He has said, I will have a people who have been purchased by my son. And that means that Laura and I can go out and can meet with people. We can share the gospel. We can work hard. And then we can sleep at night. Because God is the one who God is committed to his own glory. And I'm not alone in drawing comfort from this. If we look at Apostle Paul, even he drew comfort from this. So in Acts 18, God says to Paul in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul in a vision one night, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. Paul really had to work. He really had to go on speaking. 
But don't be afraid, Paul, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. Why? For I have many people in this city who are my people. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul drew encouragement to persevere in ministry because he knew that through God's revelation, God had a people who would respond to the call of the gospel. I have weaknesses. I have failures. I have limitations. God does not. And that means that when the gospel goes forward, we can be encouraged that he is the one who gives the growth. See, global missions goes all the way back. Second, Ephesians 2 teaches that the scope of global missions goes all the way down. God's redemptive mission extends down to our very natures, to our very beings. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The scope of global missions needs to go all the way down because the reality is we're dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Global missions is not in the business of giving people their best life now. It's in the business of giving people life, period, because they don't have it. Over the last uh, month or so, my wife has been doing a homeschool project with her four-year-old daughter, May. We've called it Project Monarch on Instagram, hashtag Project Monarch. So Project Monarch was, what we did is we, we found these poor monarch caterpillars who needed a good, loving home. And we rescued them from their natural environment. And we put them in a piece of Tupperware. Very hospitable of us. And then we put some milkweed, because I learned that monarch caterpillars eat milkweed. And we poked holes in the lid. And we watched these three monarch caterpillars. And the goal was that these monarch caterpillars would become monarch butterflies. So we cared for these caterpillars. And, and then one day, there were three of them. So there was Stripey, there was Caddy, and there was BB. I don't know how we pulled them apart, but we did. And then one day, Caddy turned into a chrysalis. And my daughter's eyes just lit up. She was excited about that. So we watched. And then that chrysalis turned into a butterfly. And so having seen the process go through once, we were really excited about the other two. But then Stripey turned too. And then Stripey stopped moving. And then Stripey fell off his leaf. And then Stripey began to smell really, really bad. What would have happened if I'm there with my daughter, May, and I would have said, sweetie, Stripey's okay. Let's just, let's just put him back on his leaf. Let's maybe nudge him around a little bit, and we'll just take some, some water and we'll spray it on his skin. Maybe his skin's a little dry. We'll moisten his skin here. And let's just see what Stripey does. Let's see if he turns into a butterfly. Is that what Stripey needed? No. Stripey needed nothing less than to be made alive again. But he was black and smelly and dead. Brothers and sisters, it may not seem like it, but this world is full of Stripey caterpillars. There are people who are walking around and they need nothing less to be made alive again. Global missions is not in the business of merely 
meeting good and necessary temporal needs. It's not in the business of merely helping lost people find their way. Global missions is in the business of taking dead caterpillars and turning them into life. Because that's what our God does. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Through the grace of God and the preaching of the gospel, dead people are made alive with Christ. The nations right now are spiritually dead apart from Christ, but through the foolishness of gospel proclamation, we have seen dead people come alive. Global missions goes all the way down to our very blood and to our very bones, giving us a new nature. And Jesus Christ becomes our life. Third, and finally, Ephesians 2 also teaches that the scope of global missions goes all the way out. By this I mean that it extends to the farthest ends of the earth. We see this especially in chapter 2, verse 17. And he came, and Jesus came, and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Paul teaches that the gospel, it doesn't just conquer our personal sin. It doesn't just conquer our spiritual deadness. It also conquers our separation. The gospel unites us together. I was reading, just this morning, reading the world news again, and just seeing story after story of fracture and separation. Whether it's the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, whether it's jihadists in the Philippines, whether it's nationalism in Venezuela and in America, there is a fracturing that is taking place that divides people from one another. And what Paul says here is the gospel conquers that. That the gospel is the glue that unites people together. And only the gospel can do that. No longer does it matter whether you're ethnically Jewish, is what Paul's saying here especially. You don't need to be born into the right family, be born of the right means. He says in Christ Jesus, everyone has equal access to God. According to one missions website, there are 16,591 total people groups. In missiology, a people group is a group of people who are united by the same ethnicity and the same language. You may have heard this term before, ethno-linguistic people group. It's a fancy way of saying we all look alike and we all sound alike. If you look alike, you sound alike, you're part of the same people group. Of these 16,591 total people groups, there are 6,741 people groups who have less than 2% of an evangelical presence. Less than 2%. That means 98% of this people group are non-believers. These are what we call unreached people groups. It means that they do not have access to a church. They do not have access to people who can tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. If you drive around Castleton, you'll run into tons of churches. And that's a good thing. We need more churches. But these are people who don't have access to Jesus. That means that there are three billion, let that sink in, three billion people in this world. 
almost half of the world's population who cannot go to church if they want to. They're Arabic speakers, they're Hindi speakers, they're Urdu speakers, they're English speakers. They're Africans, Asians, Americans, and Europeans. They're Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, animists, and secularists. And what Ephesians 2 teaches is that the gospel is for them all. The scope of the gospel reaches out to the farthest people group and says, Come, come to the water and find life. Through Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you are a Muslim jihadist or an 80-year-old church woman. You have equal access to God. The scope of global missions goes all the way back in God's electing grace, all the way down to our very natures, and all the way out to the farthest people in the world. This leads to our second aspect of global missions from the book of Ephesians, and that is the means of global missions. The means of global missions. We can know how extensive and far-reaching global missions is, but if we don't know how to accomplish it, we're not left with much. Thankfully, the Bible gives us the way to do that. And what we see is that global missions is accomplished through the church. It's accomplished through the church. This means that local churches have a global mission. We see this especially highlighted in Ephesians chapter 3. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 8 with me. To me, this is Paul writing, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul here in Ephesians 3 is saying that the nations receive knowledge of God knowledge of these unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul mentions, through Paul, as a missionary church planter, so that through the church, God could be displayed as wise and glorious. John Piper has said that missions exist because worship doesn't. The goal of missions is ultimately worship of God. And what we say here is the way that God will be displayed as wise and glorious is through the church. And so this means that global missions is not just about individual conversions to Christ. It's not merely about individuals turning to Jesus, but about churches being planted. That can then reach out to the surrounding areas with the good news of Jesus Christ. Global missions is ultimately about the glory of God. And the way that God receives glory is through the local church. You see, of utmost importance in Paul's mind was this establishing of local churches. Local churches like College Park Catholic Church. In fact, Paul's strategy was to go into a city. It's what we see. He goes into a city. He stays there for a little while. He preaches the gospel. He gathers a church. And then what does he do? He leaves. He goes on. And what he expects is that that church would carry out his initial work of reaching the surrounding area with the gospel. We see this especially clearly in the book of Romans the book of Romans. Paul writes in chapter 15, verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. 
And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul's basically saying here in Romans 15 that he has no more work to do in the region from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Now, does this mean that every person believes in Jesus in this area? No. There were still the work of evangelism to happen. What it meant is that Paul had planted a God-glorifying, wisdom-displaying, missional-minded local church that can reach out and carry on that work. You see, in Paul's mind, he's the setup man. The local church is the closer. He's the starting pitcher who pitches for about one inning, less than that. And then the local church comes in for the rest of the day. I'll never forget the first time that I realized the role of the local church specifically in reaching out to the surrounding area. It, it happened in, in college. I went to Purdue University, and I was part of Casseuse Street Baptist Church. And by a part of it, I meant I went on Sundays, and that was pretty much it. And so I was going there, and I fell in love my freshman year of college with God, with his word. I was trying to share the gospel with the guys on my dorm floor, but I was just checking in and checking out of church on Sunday. I wasn't really engaged. I wasn't really involved. And yet I knew that I was called to ministry. I knew that I was called to ministry. And so I had a coffee meeting with Pastor Don Whipple of Casseuse Street Baptist Church, sitting in a Starbucks, and if I remember right, it was for something like a three-hour-a-week youth internship, you know, really making the big bucks in college. Well, I was telling this to Pastor Whipple about how I was called to ministry, and every now and then he would ask a question, are, are you currently a member of a church? Well, no. Are you currently serving in ministry any way in the church? Well, no. But I'm reading my Bible, and I'm trying to memorize scripture, and I'm trying to reach the guys on my floor. Well, after I finished my highly persuasive argument, Pastor Whipple very calmly, yet gently, and yet directly, asked his final question. Do you realize that your desire to volunteer for ministry, apart from the affirmation and support of a local church, is not only unbiblical, but also dangerous? The interview didn't go well, as I had hoped that it would. But then he didn't leave me there. He lovingly and gently did, as he had done probably with countless college students before, showed me from the book of the Bible how it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed. How the local church in Antioch were the ones who appointed Paul and Barnabas and sent them out to the nations. How the local church appoints pastors and elders after discerning their qualifications how the local church carries on the work of ministry in surrounding areas. And all of a sudden, the penny dropped. I'd been reading my Bible like I was the hero of the story. And the reality is, I wasn't. I wasn't. I had totally missed the glory of the ordinary, messy, sinful, and yet sanctified local church. You see, Paul was deeply concerned with the local church. That's why once he planted a local church, what would he do? He would come back and visit. He would write letters. He would keep in touch. He would pray for these churches because he knew that the ministry of global missions hinged or fell on the faithfulness of the local church. In fact, Ephesians 4 through 5, if you kind of just flip around and scan those, Ephesians 4 through 5, they carry out this calling 
of the local church to engage in ministry. With Paul, it's not just the professional missionaries or ministers or pastors who are the ones who do the work of ministry. No, y'all do. Y'all do the work of ministry according to Paul. The members of the local church reach the nations through evangelism and through holiness. First, we see in chapter 4 that the whole church is involved in the work of ministry, the building up the body of Christ. Look at verse 11, chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up the body of Christ. This is one glorious reason why church planting is at the heart of global missions. It's because the whole church is involved in the work of ministry. According to this passage, you know who's called into ministry? You are. College Park Castleton is called into ministry. At the end of the day, what Mark does through the screen on Sunday is equipping you for the work of ministry. And when we send missionaries, what we're doing is we're sending missionaries to equip nationals for the work of ministry. It's here where we see global missions and local missions come together. You see, global missions, the goal of global missions is what? It's to establish local missions in a place. When we look at Dubai, we look at that and we think, wow, that's global. You know what people in Dubai say? Hey, this is local. The goal of global missions is local mission. That we want to send pastors and church planters and missionaries and businessmen to reach out to the nations. Why? So that a church can be established to do local missions and then also participate in global missions. And this network of churches grows. A local church is far more equipped to reach out to the nations than a single individual missionary is. This may come as a surprise to some of you, but I am not God. And when I say that, I mean I can be one place at one time. Right now I am here. I am in Castleton. I'm not in Dubai. That means that I can only have one conversation at one time. I can preach to a whole bunch of you guys, but if we're in the foyer, I can only talk to about one of you at a time. And so that means that even if I were the best evangelist in the world, I'm not. Even if I were the best evangelist in the world, I could only talk to one person at one time. But you know what a church can do? A church can be mobilized to reach out in countless different ways. As a man, it would be inappropriate of me to have a conversation with a Muslim woman. But not for Laura. Laura is able to. As someone who's been in ministry, I went to seminary. I was an English major. I don't know anything about business. But you do. There are business people in this room. There are business people in Dubai who can share the gospel and have conversations with their coworkers, with their neighbors. A local church is a far more effective means because what it does is it mobilizes the gifts of the body, the backgrounds of the body, and it points them to the mission and says, go there. This is what God has called you to do. When we work together, we are far more effective than any of us by ourselves as an individual. So the local church engaging in evangelism is one means of global missions. But there's also a second means that Ephesians teaches us. And that is the holiness of the local church. Have you ever thought about why Ephesians 4 through 6, as well as really the majority of the New Testament epistles, why they 
seem so inward in their orientation. By this I mean Ephesians 4 through 6, you kind of look over that. It emphasizes the way that church members speak to one another, the way church members forgive one another, the way church members walk in maturity, the way husbands love their wives, the way fathers relate to their children, the way servants relate to their masters. There are three billion people who don't know the gospel. Paul, why are you spending so much time talking about plans? Talking about work relationships? Talking about unity within the local church? The reason for this is because the holiness of the local church has everything to do with Jesus. The holiness of the local church bears witness to the power of global missions to really go all the way The holiness of the local church reveals that the proof of the gospel is in the pudding of the church. The church is the witness of the effect of the gospel. Uh, Jim Peterson is a lifelong navigator involved in that ministry, and he describes in one of his books how his friend Mario came to faith in Christ. Jim had been studying the Bible with Mario for a long time, about four years, if I remember right, and and Mario is this Marxist intellectual academic, real smart guy, reading guys like Karl Marx, Stalin, Lenin, and other people I'm not smart enough to read. Well, as he's doing these Bible studies, eventually Mario comes to faith in Christ. And he and Jim are reflecting upon how that happened. And Mario raises the question to Jim. He says, Jim, do you know when, do you know when I decided that I needed to become a believer? Jim looks back at all of his Bible studies that he'd done with him, and he's thinking, well, okay, which argument is most persuasive? And Mario looks at him and says, you know that one time when we were going to some conference, and you invited me over to your house to have a cup of soup before we went, and I came in, and as I was sitting there, and I observed the way that you and your wife talked to each other and, and the way that you and your kids related to one another. I, I had the question, how am I going to be able to love my young children? When I realized that the answer was never, I knew that I needed to make a decision. At the end of the day, it wasn't a well-thought-out argument, a persuasive sermon, or a good Bible study that led Mario to the Lord. Those things are absolutely necessary. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. But at the end of the day, the thing that clicked everything into place was the way that a father loves his children and the way that a husband relates to his wife. Ephesians 5 is about unity. Ephesians 6 is about missions. We need to send these missionaries church planters, you as a church need to be the sort of church that shows the gospel goes all the way down to transform our very own lives. The goal is maturity. It's nothing less than maturity, and maturity is attractive. I once heard a story about a uh, missionary sharing with a Muslim background believer that he was discipling. This is a person who'd already professed faith in Christ, and as he was talking, he asked the question, how are you how are you leading your wife? What are you doing to serve your wife? Are you telling her about Jesus as well? 
Muslim background believer, look at him and think, that's me. Why would I do that? She's a woman. If this missionary would have merely celebrated the fact of a Muslim coming to faith in Christ without sticking around to disciple him and help him to grow in his knowledge of Jesus, that would have been a cause for shame, not for celebration, because his life would have been a living contradiction to that. But instead, when that missionary stays in this guy's life, and he disciples him, and when that Muslim who once said that, then loves his wife and child sacrificially, dying for her if necessary, that is when the power of the gospel is on display. The planting of local churches among the nations that will pursue both evangelism and outreach and holiness is the means of global missions, which leads us to our final point, and that is the call of global missions. Paul ends his letter in Ephesians with a call for them to participate in the global mission of the church. As Paul wraps up his teaching on the armor of God, one of the most famous passages in Ephesians, he actually shows what this armor of God teaching ought to serve. Look at Ephesians 6, chapter 18. He says, verse 18, he says, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians concludes with a call to participate in global missions through prayer, through praying for Paul. And we see there are two ways to respond to this call. The first I just mentioned, you can pray for missionaries. You can pray for missionaries who are working in unreached places and in reached places that God would give them boldness in the opening of their mouths. This is what Paul exhorts the Ephesians to do. He wants them to pray for him to have boldness and opportunity to share the gospel. I don't know about you, but it is incredibly encouraging for me to know that the Apostle Paul prayed for boldness, had people pray for him for boldness. Has there ever been a less bold person in the history of the church than the Apostle Paul? He's like, you stone me? That's okay. I'll go to the next city. Peter? I mean, you're the cornerstone of the church, but hey, man, you're in the wrong here. Paul's going to speak whatever he says, and yet Paul knew that he needed the prayers of the saints. In my previous church, I worked on staff in the global outreach department, and I provided administrative and pastoral support for about 130 missionary units, about 400 people total at the increased church. And one of my roles was to meet with missionaries with our mission committee when they were on home assignment. And after meeting with missionary after missionary after missionary, I realized that someone, maybe me, needs to write a book. And that book is called Missionaries Are People Too. You see, sometimes we can read biographies and we can hear stories of missionaries and we can unnecessarily and and unwillingly maybe put them up on a pedestal and think that they are the superheroes of the church that they don't really need our prayers. We can read and we can think, man, Hudson Taylor was a stud. Surely he could do whatever God called him to do. And the reality is one of the ways that Hudson Taylor was able to be faithful was because he had people praying for him. And this means that we ought to be praying for the nations and praying for missionaries in our lives 
beyond that month that their newsletter hits our inbox. One of the means that my marriage has to make sure that I am not unfaithful to my wife is the prayers of my family. One of the means that I have to be able to have an opportunity to share the gospel is the prayers of the saints. You see, missionaries are people like you too. We have sin. We have weakness. There are mornings when we wake up and we don't want to read our Bibles. There are mornings when prayer is hard for us. And my theory is that rather than hindering our prayers for missionaries, when we realize they're people too, what that actually does is it actually helps us deepen for the church. Because it means that I need your prayers. The 46 or 47, however many missionaries in the prayer booklet around the corner, need your prayers. Their godliness, their mission, their holiness depends on whether you are praying or not in public. So, consider that a announcement to come to worship-based prayer tonight. Come. Come and pray for missionaries. Grab one of those. Pray for us because we need it. We need it. But sometimes when we find ourselves participating in global missions through prayer, we can often realize that God is calling us to participate in another. And that is to join the ranks of Paul and countless others and move our families to the unreached areas to take the gospel where it has not yet been preached. The call to nations, to the nations, looks different for different people. God works in different ways. In my own life, after being involved formally and informally in sending and praying for missionaries, after financially supporting missionaries, and like I said, as my part of my role in staff, working with missionaries in my previous church, praying through operations roles, fasting for the nations. After all these things had been done, the call of God came in an email from a friend of mine who was going to Dubai with his church. I had emailed John, and I had said, hey man, we don't know where God's calling us or what, but we'd like to join your support team. I'm a pastoral resident, so it won't be a lot, but we'd love to be able to join in some way. And he shot me an email back and said, that's great. I appreciate that. But we actually don't want your money. We actually want your body. So we can't do this on our own. And one thing we'd like for you to do is we'd like for you to seriously pray about whether or not you should join us. And Lord took that and we received that as a call from God. And we prayed. And we talked to people. And we sought counsel. By God's grace, we're moving on December 25th to Dubai to plant a church. Some of you have been praying and thinking about global missions for a long time. Some of you, it's time to take that step. Some of you need to meet with one of our missionaries during Ruth or who's on home assignment and say, what were the ways that you overcame your fear of global missions in order to take the next step? Logistically, how did you make that discovery? Some of you may just need to talk to Dale or talk to Eric or talk to Luke and say, look, I don't know where God's calling me or how God's calling me, but I want to kind of go public with this and put my cards on the table and say, I'm here. I'm more than just here. I want to pursue this. The call is not merely to pray. It's absolutely necessary. But we also need to pursue and we need to go. I want to close this morning by speaking especially to the people who might be feeling that tension right now 
it might be tempting. I want to go to the nations. But I wanna, also want to speak to those who feel like they're committed to pray and committed to pray. Which is a fancy way of saying, I want to speak to all of you guys. Do you love the local church? Do you love College Park? Are you currently involved in the local church? The way in which missionaries are made is by ministry in the local church. When you have brothers and sisters who are watching you, who are seeing you demonstrate godliness, demonstrate truthfulness, you're able to affirm what God's doing in your life and say, brother, sister, I'm doing this. I think you should do it over there. If we're passionate about global missions, we need to be passionate about the local church. Do you know what a healthy local church looks like? Do you know what healthy church leaders ought to be like? We need to desire, as people who pray and as people who go, to not just see people converted, but see churches established. This doesn't mean that we should only send church planters. There's need for Bible translators. There's need for folks working in business and in community development. But the sort of people that we send ought to be people who love the local church and ought to be people who recognize that it is through the church that the manifestation of God takes place. I'll never forget a Skype call that I had with a um, team leader, actually, of a mission organization, a very well-known mission organization who was working in Malaysia, who was specifically there to do church planting among Muslims. And as we were talking and as we were discussing some of his strategies, there were a couple flags that were raised, and so I asked him, in your mind, wh- what's the difference between a group of Muslims studying the Bible and a local church? Like, what's the difference between those two things? He paused for a second. You know, that's a good question. I ought to think about that. Now, I may have simply caught him off guard. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, he may not have been expecting it, not been able to process it, but brothers and sisters, if we're going to send and if we're going to go, we've got to be answering that question. That if we're going to plant churches, we have to be able to say, we want to plant holy churches, churches that are regenerate, that are made up of believers, churches that have gone public with their faith in baptism, churches that have godly leaders over them, elders and deacons, churches that are missionally minded, Churches that know we are called to purity and holiness and godliness. That's the sort of churches that we need to plant. They may look different. They may sound different. The songs they sing may be different. The way it works itself out in the culture may be different. But the standard in the Bible is what we want to see our churches be. Three years ago, I had the joy of helping to equip a young couple from my previous church, Jameson and Catherine Howe, to go to Japan. Japan, you may not know, it's actually one of the most unreached areas in the world. The wealth and the secularism has been deadly for the Christian church. People are falling in love with their toys and their gadgets. Why am I telling you that, Eli? Well, Jameson and Catherine had been praying for years about going to Japan. They were a couple years older than me. And they were finally ready to go. And on their last journey, their missionary organization's training, they and their three children were rear-ended by a semi-truck and were killed by fire. 
there was a time of great loss and great mourning. I was here in my office. I'll never forget when I got an email from Jim Rowan. He had just accepted the call to go to Chapelwood, Southeast Cincinnati. He sent me an email and said, brother, you may want to know this. I went to that and I wept. I wept. It was not a time of mourning for Jameson and Cassidy, though, because they were in the presence of Jesus. And they had given their lives to this mission. They'd fallen in love with the global vision of the local church. And they knew that even if they couldn't go, the vision that they taught of the gospel going to the Jews would continue. Sixteen days before they were killed, Jameson wrote a blog post called Unreached and How We Do Things. In that blog, he articulated his passion for the nations that would end up costing him his life as he traveled the country meeting with supporters and getting some He wrote in that blog on how to reach the unreached. In this age, the church is imperfect to say the least. We're not blind to her shortcomings, yet we dare not downplay her beauty either. The Lord did not consider himself above dying for the church. He does now, not now, count himself above dwelling in her midst and working through her. If you care about people knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ, you should care about the growth and establishment of churches in our nation. We, Jameson and Cassidy, we desire to see the country of Japan filled with healthy, outward-facing, Christ-exalting churches, manifestations of Jesus Christ, where the millions of Japanese people with depression can take refuge, where the one million young men who have locked themselves in their room can find freedom from shame, where the 30,000 who would commit suicide every year from stress find hope. Those people find it in the community. Jameson and Cassidy never made it to Japan. But through their organization and through the church team that they were going to be a part of, their ministry did. College Park Baptist. That's what Florida Keys needs. That's what Florida Keys needs today. People who have caught a vision for the scope of global mission. People who have caught a vision for the farthest people in the world, the hardest people to know that Christ has died for them. And people who have caught a vision for the fact that the keys of the church are bigger than them. May we as a congregation, as we faithfully seek to reach the captive and the captive, and seek to see lives changed in this country, may we pray for, send, and participate in global mission over the course of our lives. Lord, thank you for this book. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the sort of God who loves messy and broken sinners. And you have given us a home for this. Lord, I pray for this congregation that, Lord, you would build your church. The gates of hell in America may look different than the gates of hell in Nevada. But, Lord, they can't scare you away. Thank you that you are working in and through us that it's for our joy that we just participate. And we pray this in Jesus' name.